Welcome back to the Governance Podcast for the Center for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Carmen Pavel, and I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Economy here at King's. And today I'm very pleased to talk to Leah Ipi, Professor of Political Theory in the Government Department, London School of Economics, and Adjunct Associate Professor in Philosophy at the Research School of Social Sciences, Australian National University. Professor Ipi has published widely on partisanship and the role of parties, Kant's political philosophy, the wrong of colonialism, immigration, and territorial rights, to name a few. Thank you for being here. Thank you for hosting me. Um, so global issues have become much more salient in both sort of public political discourse, but also to political theorists over the last couple of decades. And you've made an important contribution with your book, Global Justice and Avant-Garde Political Agency. So I'd like to start by asking you some questions about the argument in that book. And in particular, I'm interested in and your contribution to a conversation that sees the role of the state as, as being sort of outdated, perhaps, by, by current political problems and also sort of the evolution of, of political uh, interactions at the international level. So there's one sort of strong uh, uh, argument in the global justice literature that argues that states are obsolete forms of political association. And they're really inadequate for the task of solving the problems of global injustice we're confronted with. But you argue against this position, and you defend instead a form of statist cosmopolitanism. Could you explain what statist cosmopolitanism is? Yeah, um, statist cosmopolitanism is a position that begins with this debate that you just mentioned between cosmopolitans on the one hand and statists on the other and the debate is really about the normative standing of the state and the scope of egalitarian obligations, obligations of global justice. So for statists, the idea is that because states take normative priority, they have ethical standing and they define the kinds of obligations that we have and also how we should rank these obligations. The idea is that we have obligations to everyone, to citizens of the world at large, to fellow citizens, to family members. And the idea is that the state defines a kind of political association where because of the normative and juridical and political relations that we have with fellow citizens, obligations of justice take priority. And so that the primary addressees of our obligations are our fellow citizens. So the status position is that states have independent normative standing and that uh, egalitarian justice has is defined, the scope of egalitarian justice is defined by state-based political relations. And cosmopolitans, on the other hand, say that um, states are arbitrary, that our very belonging to particular political communities is an arbitrary fact. We don't choose to be born in wealthy or poor states, and yet this belonging defines who uh, we are and what opportunities we have in life. And since the very existence of state is morally arbitrary, uh, states shouldn't define and uh, shape the content of our obligations of justice. So the book tries to uh, make a contribution to this debate between cosmopolitans on the one hand and egalitarians um, and um, statists on the other by talking about the difference between principles on the one hand and agency on the other. So the starting point is that principles are about what we ought to do 
and uh, what we have reason to do. And agency is about how we do what we do. And I say that if we um, care about principles and we think about principles from a global perspective, then it really does seem um, arbitrary to narrow down the obligations that we have in relationship to our forms of political association, since these forms of political association are contingent, since the world is globalized, interdependent, and so there are many ways in which we network with other people who are not necessarily fellow citizens. There are many ways in which we share problems with people with whom we don't necessarily share boundaries. So if we think about it from the point of view of principles, then we should be cosmopolitan egalitarians. And yet, it seems that from a political relationship, states do take priority because it's through states that our political membership is defined and our political membership channels and tracks how we make, an if how we make a difference in politics, how we can be politically active. Because states exercise coercion, because sovereignty is defined by the state, because the forms of political education are mediated and instantiated by um, state juridical relations, then it seems that agency is channeled in an important way by the state. And status cosmopolitanism is a way of being um, basically a cosmopolitan about principles and a statist about agency. So the idea is that if you're a statist cosmopolitan, then you will want to see global egalitarianism flourish, but the way in which you will try to realize global egalitarianism is by taking advantage of these associative political relations that we have with fellow citizens and turn these moral obligations of global justice into political obligations. All right, great. So this would be political obligations at the state level? They are. They begin, they begin at the state level, but the idea is to transcend the mm -hmm. uh, narrow boundaries of the state and to shape and create forms of political relations that uh, go beyond the state and so to create the necessary institutions or the necessary reforms uh, at the global level that are required to realize as best we can global egalitarianism. Okay, excellent. Thanks. And how does then in practice your position would say differ from a cosmopolitan position? Because ultimately you say the goal is to realize these global egalitarian principles. Right, so what would be, you say, sort of in, in practical terms, the difference between your view and the view of, of a cosmopolitan? Well, uh, I guess the cosmopolitan would say that the state is also arbitrary from a political perspective. Mm. In a way, they would say that uh, since in light of transformations in globalization, transnational institutions begin to be important or more local forms of political relation are also important, there is no need to prioritize the state as a political site of our activity. Yeah. And my view says that because of the way in which our political relations are structured by the state and because of the kinds of coercions and the kinds of juridical relations that um, mediate our relationship with other fellow citizens, the state um, is really a primary site of political activity. And so any intervention that uh, is required to transcend the state needs to go through the state as well. So would you say that, that being a status cosmopolitan makes a difference in terms of, say, the time it might take to realize cosmopolitan um, justice? Or, or would you rather say without states we couldn't even get to the point where you realize cosmopolitan justice? Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily about time. In, in my view, it's more about democracy mm. and about the kinds of politics that we can have that the states enable. 
So uh, we see now with a number of political debates in this country, obviously with Brexit, that uh, the democratic interactions between citizens seem to be really important and in fact are often invoked sometimes in a way that criticizes them by saying, look, transnational institutions are now much more important uh, and, uh, and so therefore these are obsolete types of political relations. But then on the other hand, from people who say that, for example, voting or participating at the political level, at the national political level, are still the only ways in which we can have political accountability and involvement at a larger level of citizens. And so it's a democratic argument, the one that says that we need to prioritize states because it is still the case that democracy, because of elections, because of the way in which politics is organized, is filtered by these state-mediated relations. And so if we want to have a kind of argument for cosmopolitanism, that isn't just an elitist argument that says we ought to transform political institutions at the transnational level. And then the question of who is going to be responsible for these uh, transformations, and the answer is typically policymakers, academics, intellectuals. In my case, the idea is to give um, um, space to these forms of political relations that are democratically mediated at the national level and that are typically considered to be um, bottom-up rather than top-down. Okay, great. And I think this kind of argument reflects your particular view of, of the right way of doing political theory, mm -hmm. perhaps. Not the only way, but maybe one important way of doing political theory. So what would you say that your account, how is your account of status cosmopolitanism related to your view about what the role of political theory is and of, of the political theorists, perhaps? Mm -hmm. So um, so again, here, the, the attempt is to think about the political theorist as a political agent. And as you say, it's not, uh, in this case, while with the uh, cosmopolitans versus statists, I would say that my argument trumps normatively, sort of gives has benefits that neither of these views said. I would say that with the other argument about activist political theory, this really is one mode of engagement in with political theory. So I'm not trying to say that this mode of engagement supplants the other or replaces other perfectly valid ways of thinking about the role of theorists. So there is a role for the theorists of the ivory tower, as it were. And uh, in my account, I'm interested in exploring the relationship between the political theorist as a theorist and the political theorist as a citizen, as a, someone who is engaged in democratic politics, as an activist. And activist political theory is an attempt to think about political theory that is embedded in particular contests of justice and uh, that engages with power relations, with the kinds of inequalities, with structural injustices, in which the theorists find themselves embedded because of their um, simply belonging in particular contexts and of their taking a stance with regard to these conflicts and to the kind of crisis that they experience and using theory to try and shed light on the best way to articulate these conflicts. And in the book, I try to explain this in different stages by talking about the relationship between political, uh, the activist political theorists and social movements more broadly. So on the one hand, activist political theorists are part of general um, social movements. They are part of emancipatory movements in society. But on the other hand, they play a specific role within those movements, which is to try and, uh, on the one hand, diagnose and articulate by using academic knowledge, intellectual knowledge, intellectual exchange, the kinds of conflicts in society that uh, trigger the demands of particular social movements, and to try and account for these uh, conflicts that we experience at the right level, at the right uh, justificatory level, but also at the right level of agency. And so 
to take just the global justice example in the book, I use the debate around global justice as one way of explaining how an activist political theory ought to engage with in this debate between the relationship uh, and the role of the state on the one hand and the demands of egalitarian justice on the one, on the other. So the way in which I articulate the relationship is by talking about these different stages in which we see the role of activist political theorists. And there is at first a kind of diagnostic stage in which a theorist tries to explain where do particular conflicts come from and how can we account for them at the appropriate fundamental level. There is uh, what I call a heuristic stage and uh, an innovative stage in which the theorist tries to both find out what is wrong with particular conflict, but also to uh, come up with solutions that are normatively adequate and that respond and take into account of these various conflicts. And then there is a, a third um, stage in which the theorist also tries to anticipate what kind of problems this new view might lead into the future, what kind of institutions will be required, what kind of conflicts will these institutions um, experience, how will they create new subjects, and so on and so forth. And this is really where we perhaps then get to the limits of political theory, because there is only so much that we can anticipate. So the, the, the main role is that of basically articulating and clarifying struggles in society, and using their role and their knowledge to try and contribute to shedding light on these struggles and to then also adjudicate between the different kinds of social actors and agents in society that are involved in these struggles in the hope of distinguishing perhaps between progressive and regressive social movements and in the hope of saying, well, there are um, clearly conflicts in society, there's clearly different movements that respond to these conflicts. But if we think about these conflicts from a principled perspective, how would we adjudicate between the different kinds of political movements that respond to these conflicts? And how would we adjudicate also with regard to how adequate their responses to these conflicts are? Yeah, great. So it seems that you have a view of political theorists as um, an agent with a distinctive contribution to political um, evaluation, political criticism of political and political debate where on the one hand, polit the political theorists can provide some sort of prin general principles or sort of endpoint uh, for reform, but at the same time, engage with the question as with as you say in your book of how do we get from where we are mm -hmm. to the uh, sort of principles we want to realize, to the ideal of justice that we want to realize, and that's um, I think a very sort of helpful overview of what political theory does best. Um, and you've applied this um, in different ways. There's a continuous theme, I think, throughout your work. And more recently, this has uh, this sort of ins insightful way of engaging. Uh, you've applied this to the role of parties and activism and engagement through parties. So in your book with Jonathan White, called The Meaning of Partisanship, you discuss the foundational role parties play and ought to continue to play in modern democratic life. Can you tell us why you think parties serve this very important, perhaps defa defining and irreplaceable role in political life? Mm -hmm. um, yes, so the book starts with um, by taking stock of the debates around political parties and by acknowledging also that for a very long time political theory hasn't been interested in political parties. Parties have been very much the domain of political scientists who were... Um, 
asking questions around how do we measure party participation, when are parties corrupt, different types of party leaders and so on, but perhaps weren't asking the kind of normative questions that political theorists like to ask around the uh, issue of what is a party for and what do we need parties? Why do we organize our political life around parties? Now, that we do organize our political life around parties is obvious if we try and think about how we have governments and how we run elections that... uh, on the basis of which we choose governments and then how from these governments emerge the kind of laws and public policies that we are all subjected to. So if we think about the mechanism of uh, representation in the liberal democracies in which we live, parties seem to be unique agents because they are on the one hand grounded in civil society and in societal interactions between citizens, and yet they also they are unlike uh, purely voluntary organizations or movements-based um, organizations. They are also connected to lawmaking in a very particular way. So parties are like unions and like interest groups and like social movements rooted in the kind of democratic activity of citizens, but in a unique way, differently from these other movements, also connected to government and to the making of laws and public policies that we all subjected to. So... If we ask the kind of Rousseauian democratic question of uh, how do we justify the exercise of political power, and it seems that we exercise, we justify the, the um, exercise of political power if we have a say in the laws by which we are ruled, then in liberal representative democracies, these laws are made through our participation and choice of political parties. So the interest in the book in the kind of party form and party representation really has to do with this issue of justification of the coercive use of power. It seems that uh, we need a reason for being subjected to power. And that reason in the democratic tradition is given by suggesting that if we can have a say in the laws that we subject ourselves to, then these laws are considered to be justified. And thinking that in liberal representative democracies, the way in which we have a say is through our collective agency in political parties. So the interest in parties is as agents that seem to uh, respond to the demand for democratic justification in an adequate way and in a unique way, in a way that is connected both, as I say, to these voluntary, spontaneous forms of political organization at the societal level and also in the coercive aspect of making laws and enacting laws. And in the book, we um, we then explore different aspects of this relationship. We explore the meaning of partisanship, as we call it, by thinking not just about the political party as an institution that makes and enacts law, but in trying to think about a richer understanding of what a party is when it's connected to the democratic activity of citizens, when it is uh, when the connection with this apparatus of political democratic justification takes place, again, at the membership level and not just at the level in which laws are made. And so by thinking about the forms of authorization, by thinking about the kinds of obligations that members and partisans have to each other and to society at large, by thinking about the transformation and the evolution of parties in time, by thinking around uh, about questions of um, how do parties change, when they change, what kind of demands are placed on them, what kind of uh, obligations do they have to their partisans to make an argument for how change ought to take place, by thinking about relations around compromise, uh, how do parties make compromises when their principles are at stake, when it seems that these principles are often in um, fundamental contrast with each other because they reflect different worldviews and different visions of how society ought to be organized. 
And also by thinking about uh, the question of revolutionary partisanship, the relationship between the party and the state. So when the party is foundational for a particular kind of state, especially a state that perhaps emerges out of unjust circumstances or in revolutionary circumstances of transition. And then finally, also by thinking about transnational partisanship. So the idea that this connects perhaps the themes of my first book with the themes of the second book by thinking about using the party mechanism and the partisanship mechanism as a way of realizing demands of transnational cosmopolitan justice and not just demands that are limited to the forms of civic participation that we know in the state. Yeah, great. So it's, it sounds like a really rich account of the role of parties in our public political life and, and also the ways in which they channel information and they structure political debates for voters and then kind of narrow down the set of questions from what is a dizzying array That's right. of policy options that it's sort of hard for sort of every single voter to think about independently and get enough sort of information about um so there's there's value there but do you think then there's there are costs associating with associated with organizing our mm -hmm. political life around parties mm -hmm. yes i do think there are costs and there are trade-offs required and one of the first costs is perhaps the uh, sacrifice of individual sovereignty when one is a party member when one um, acts in the political sphere in association with others then one has to make compromises and to kind of be willing to um, ask oneself about whether one is really convinced of the views that one initially uh, held prior to joining these forms of political organization one has to ask questions around uh, is the independence of thought and action sacrificed when one is a partisan because one often there there is a kind of discipline of association and there are associative obligations that come with uh, with a cost and this is no different really from how we think at, a, at least at a kind of philosophical level with how one think about the relationship between a family member and an individual prior to being a family member so just like a family or just like other forms of organization that we know if one think of thinks of the value of parties in this associative form then it's clear that the association comes with um, certain demands on the individual and that uh, I think it would be an illusion to think that there is no trade-off involved whatsoever because there is always a trade-off when one is a member of an association whether it's a family whether it's a state whether it's a political party then there is a trade-off the question is and and the way in which the book responds to this challenge is by saying uh, yes we need to acknowledge that there are trade-offs but these trade-offs become particularly costly and particularly demanding when, when parties are the only associations that we relate to. So if we think of parties as, again, one kind of association amongst many that plays a particular function in political life, that uh, plays the desirable role of channeling political commitment in a particular way, that also has some benefits in terms of, as you mentioned earlier, epistemic empowerment or motivational empowerment. I may know things better when I challenge my views with my fellow partisans, or I may be more motivated to act uh, when there is a sort of common sense source of strength and solidarity, then perhaps the costs are worth bearing, provided that they are not only costs, provided that they come with some benefits on the one hand, and provided that when they become really demanding, parties are not the only associations that they are, that they're part of a kind of associative life when there are multiple forms of association, multiple forms of loyalty that hopefully temper each other and that help taking away the extremes of all of these particular um, associative forms. Um, and, and these associative forms are 
in the end, the richness of associated form what enables like a, a healthy democratic engagement uh, with politics. I think this is sort of the the ultimate point that you want to make um, in the book. And and I think you sort of um, take this point about public engagement as a political theorist um, very seriously as well. And um, in your more recent work, you've become more interested in the role of of um, reaching a wider audience as a political theorist. Um, uh, and so you write in popular press about contemporary issues in the UK and Europe. And, and I'm really interested to hear what your experience doing that is, is like. Um, are you, what are you learning as a political theorist, I guess? Um, in addition to keeping things simple <laughs> and to, uh, to making an effort at communicating certain ideas that have animated political theory, but that perhaps are used in a particular language and um, that sometimes make political theories in a way lazy because we all understand each other and we have particular terminologies. I mean, I started by talking about the debate between cosmopolitans and statists and about the dilemmas of global egalitarianism. But of course, in the kind of popular, um, in, in the popular press or amongst the more sort of popular audience, these would be technical terms that would already be difficult to understand. And so I think the challenge is to then think about what is the equivalent way of referring to uh, these terms. What is something that those who are not experts or who have not studied political theory or who are not uh, inside these debates would still be able to understand mm -hmm. that uh, puts us, that gives us a common ground. And I think that has been the greatest challenge for me to try and think, what do I know as a political theorist and how do I relate to politics as it happens around me? And what is the common ground that I have between my you know, fellow citizens or fellow interlocutors who don't necessarily shame, uh, share the same uh, background um, at the technical level? but who share the concerns and who also perhaps share the intuitions. And so the challenge is then to, to bridge between these different ways of thinking about politics in a way that, uh, that, that makes the exchange productive. Right. So it is very much um, the challenge of finding the common language that I think um, um, is, is sort of obvious um, in the way you describe it. But it looks like you're doing that successfully. And one of the themes of your public engagement is... The need, uh, if I understand it correctly, to maybe develop an alternative to liberalism. Um, can you tell us where does contemporary liberalism fail in your view? Um, and what is the alternative that you're advocating? Mm -hmm. So this is, again, one of these questions of uh, where when one answers a question, one has to think, well, how do I answer this question? Do I answer it as a political theorist or do I answer it as a citizen or as someone who engages with liberalism at a level that is not necessarily the level in which a political theorist engages with it? So uh, if one thinks about liberalism from a political perspective, from a theoretical perspective, one uh, would think about it as a kind of ideal view, as an ideal view of institutions, as something that may be only um, imperfectly realized in the kinds of institutions that we know. And of course, there's different kinds of liberalism. There's political liberalism, there's economic liberalism, there's social liberalism. And it's difficult to mount a critique of liberalism that brings all of these things together without necessarily getting into contradictions because there are parts of liberalism that criticize other parts of liberalism. So the challenge in, uh, in, in sort of discussing these questions at, again, as you mentioned, the popular level, level at popular audience is to try and think about 
which of these presuppositions are um, largely shared? Which of these do I find when I read the news or when I read the media or when I engage with um, the, the, the topics of, of common concern? And what, what is the kind of understanding of liberalism that is mostly referred to when people say that there is clearly a crisis of liberalism? And um, so when we read the popular press or you read the Financial Times or The Economist, one would find that even um, outlets, uh, presses that would have been support or would be supporters of liberalism, clearly see that there is an issue with the way in which political liberalism is perhaps aligned with economic liberalism. And um, as I see it, and where I take it at sort of more perhaps um, normative or, or, or theoretical, philosophical level, is to try and think about whether um, liberalism can survive this tension between political liberalism on the one hand, which seems to require the state in order to regulate itself and to regulate markets and the economic life that liberals are also committed to, and economic liberalism on the other hand, which seems to always push back against the state. Mm. So the way in which I think about, the reason I think about the importance of thinking beyond liberalism is perhaps in terms of this contradiction between, as I say, um, the state on the one hand and the market on the other. And the tension that is often referred to in analyzing contemporary politics as this inability of states to contain um, markets, but also the inability perhaps of states to give expression to the kind of democratic life that would have been important to place limits on markets. So what we see when we think about, for example, the way in which the popular press often refers to populism as one pushback against liberalism, the argument there is that there is a kind of pushback against liberal elites who are held responsible for the transformations of the last, um, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And where the idea is that there's been a kind of crisis of political institutions in terms of their responsiveness to the um, economic drives that they had themselves put in motion. So um, the, the crisis of social democracy, the what is often referred to in the press again also as the, um, the failures of strong unions and strong popular movement to kind of counter the rise of market forces and the transnationalization of these market forces are all occasions to think about liberalism in this kind of more general way and to think about the way in which states and state-based institutions are able, are or are not able to counter this development of neoliberal market forces. As I say, it's very difficult. For me, it's very difficult because, uh, because, this, because talking about liberalism from a political theoretical perspective has many, many different um, connotations. And some of these are critical themselves. So talking about political liberalism is not the same as talking about neoliberalism or talking about social liberalism is not the same as talking about political liberalism. But what is also interesting for me is to kind of recuperate, going back to the history of political thought, a kind of tradition of criticism to liberalism that seems to have already been in place at the moments of emergence of what we now call commercial society. So I'm interested in recuperating these enlightenment criticisms and critiques of liberalism when liberalism was in the making. And so the Rousseauian idea, for example, that um, that liberalism is grounded on a particular moral psychology, which is a kind of selfish moral psychology that doesn't make space for communal solidarity and or further critiques of the way in which, for example, the liberal state tries to contain the contradictions of commercial society. And so going back to the thought of Kant and Fichte and Hegel, thinking about the tensions of the 
commercial state, and then all the way uh, then to Marx, who I think synthesizes this Enlightenment tradition of criticism of liberalism and comes up with a kind of alternative, which is again rooted in a Republican and socialist tradition. And the effort for me has been to try and think about what are the resources that the history of political thought gives us in terms of criticism of liberalism and in terms of conceiving of a society beyond liberalism, perhaps socialist society, and how can we think about that vision and that ideal in light of the contemporary challenges and in light of the political problems that we face, whether it's um, environmental disasters or whether it's migration crisis and kind of incapacity of liberal states and liberal institutions to respond to these challenges. So I see the, my philosophical work on radical uh, global egalitarianism as aligned with this recent attempt to rethink socialism, because I think at the heart of socialism is precisely a kind of global egalitarian drive. Socialism is a theory that is for the world at large, it's not confined to one particular state, in fact, tries to think beyond the state, tries to think about international solidarity, and is an attempt to uh, defend this idea of social equality that is grounded on a particular account of uh, moral relations between human beings. So I see the, the one as a kind of more philosophically technical, in a way, understanding and of, of the other, which is the, the, being, the other being socialism, where socialism has this tradition stemming from the critique of liberalism that is rooted in the Enlightenment accounts of liberalism. I think it's really important to develop alternative visions of political society, both sort of to test whether and why we value the kind of society we do, but also sort of understand whether there are things wrong with it and change it. And so this kind of project, I think, is, is very valuable. It's, it's clear that there's some problems within liberal societies today that, that uh, perhaps illustrate the sort of tensions that you talk about. And I think many self-professed liberals would agree that these mm. problems exist. What their reaction would be, though, to these problems would not be to say liberalism should die. It's just to sort of, sort of see those tensions and, as, and perhaps inherent in liberalism, but, but, but try to work them out also within liberalism mm. to, to try to find a better balance. So a, it's a much more gradualist, I guess, approach mm -hmm. to political reform. But it sounds like, at least from sort of the way you talk about um, recuperating this criticism of commercial society, that you want to reject this gradualism, mm -hmm. that you want to provide a, a, a more radically different political option than the one we have now. So why move all the way to socialism as opposed to sort of working within the confines of existing sort of political institution, mm -hmm. institutions? Well, so for me, the question, I mean, I'm not necessarily opposed from the sort of dogmatically opposed to this very radically reconstructed liberalism. The question is for me, how much are you going to give up in the process of revisiting liberalism in the course of adapting it to these new demands and in the course of adapting it to face its own self-criticism, as it were? So the question for me is there is a point in which the uh, liberal analysis of political institutions, say liberal representative democracy, so political liberalism, as it were, is, conjoined, is joined with the economic liberalism, so this analysis of markets and uh, a focus on opportunity as filtered through market interactions with an analysis of society, and that for all these things to come together and work, the... Um, critical liberals 
would have to give up a number of core assumptions, which I think after at some point down the line, they will discover that they have given up so much that what they have is actually not really recognizable as liberalism. And at that point, I say, well, why don't you call it socialism? Because it seems to me that in this process of kind of tracing one steps back and finding out what are the philosophical and moral premises that survive this criticism, the kind of the more positive criticism, the empirical criticism of political liberalism combined with economic liberalism combined with social liberalism, and the way in which they give us the kinds of institutions that we live by. It seems to me that in in the process of kind of retrieving critically one's steps and trying to find out, to to find um, elements in liberalism that would rescue the theory, it seems to me that one loses a lot of the core assumptions that one would associate with liberalism. And so for me, then it becomes just a question of kind of moral clarity and also political clarity to say, well, this seems to be what socialists have always said. Mm -hmm. And so I have no problem with saying that someone like Mill, for example, who is traditionally considered a liberal, shares a number of core assumptions also with um, with socialist authors and indeed with the critic- with socialist criticisms of, of liberalism. But it seems to me that one... When one engages in this process of kind of purifying Mill from all the the, the, the the troubling features of this view of, say, I don't know, colonialism or particular views around self-determination and so on, then what one is left with is a socialist account. Just just that. And so this is why I I don't know if it's just terminological and or if it's um, or if there's more more to that, but um, I think. It may be that in terms of substance, there is very, uh, very little to divide my view of this kind of reconstructed socialism from a very, very critical view of liberalism. Uh, it, it may be, though, that in terms of signaling and in terms of how then this is also interpreted in the public sphere and by political actors in political society, it seems to me that the uh, while for theorists there is a lot to be gained in terms of purifying the view, I think in terms of visibility and in terms of how the view is picked up by citizens and by social movements and so on, it's much more clear if you say that you're a socialist and if you say, well, I'm a critical liberalism who has revisited this and revisited this and revisited that. So I think it's that, that's probably what motivates and perhaps explains where I'm coming from with it. Understood. And so let's pursue this question of uh, the socialist alternative a bit further. So what would you say would characterize not just sort of at the level of principles, so there's clearly a strong egalitarian ethos be behind socialism. But in terms of actual institutions, what do you think would be different mm-hmm. in this alternative political world? So, um, I mean, there is obviously a core criticism of uh, liberalism on the side of socialists, which is the one that clusters together the criticism of economic liberalism and political liberalism and that um, comes up with an alternative to capitalism. So the starting point is Marx and Marx's critique of capitalism. And the the core, I think the moral core of Marx's critique of capitalism is the asymmetry in ownership access. So this asymmetry in access to the means of production. There's people who inherit their wealth and therefore also inherit what makes wealth and what creates wealth and creates job. And then there are people who are um, positioned differently and who have very few means of getting to the same position as those who own the means of production, means of exchange, and so on. So 
a, a socialist alternative begins with the attempt to rectify this fundamental asymmetry, which is a kind of asymmetry of ownership in terms of restructuring economic and power relations to make it more accessible, to make um, forms of wealth and ownership more accessible to everyone. But I think there is also a criticism of political uh, liberalism and political institutions that is perhaps, uh, that has been more neglected in this focus on socialism as an economic alternative to liberalism, and which I am very interested in, which is recuperating the uh, radical institutional critique of liberalism and the institutional critique of liberal forms of representation. And this would be um, for example, placing into question the division of labor in society between professional politicians on the one hand and ordinary citizens on the other. It would put into question the divide between uh, technocratic elites and the role that knowledge plays in politics, where the idea is that a democratically empowered society is one where political roles are distributed equally and where everyone rotates in office and has a share, has an equal share in the capacity to influence in politics. So it seems to me that there is a radical democratic tradition that is, again, part of the um, socialist characterization of the critique of political liberalism now that needs to be also revived and that would be an important part of rethinking socialism in terms of not just an economic alternative to capitalism, but in terms of also thinking of the kinds of institutional innovations. There are um, a number of elements in the social tradition and theories that go in that direction. There is, for example, Marx's analysis of the Paris Commune and the way in which uh, the Paris Commune comes to a new understanding, a new definition of political roles, where, for example, politicians are paid very little, uh, they're paid an ordinary working man's um, day's labor, in which rotation in office is a fundamental part of political institutions, in which the separation of powers works very differently from how it works in a liberal society. So I think all of these elements are part of an attempt to revise a different tradition, a different way of engaging the relationship between economics and politics. Mm. So socialism comes with a very distinctive vision, not just sort of sort of a, an endpoint and a sort of principles, but also a set of institutions and how they would be sort of differently organized than the current institutions we have. Yeah, I think of socialism as a, a radically a radical democratic theory, mm. um, and. To think radically democratically about institutions is very demanding because it requires revisiting not just the economic sphere, but also the way in which we shape power relations, the way in which we think about political positions and the organization of political roles and also institutions like the executive or the judiciary or the civil service, the administration, all of which are um, democratized. And to democratize all these institutions requires, um, first of all, equal wealth, because uh, it's important that asymmetries of wealth don't shape and don't condition the way in which individuals have a voice in these institutions. But it also requires a different way of thinking about what politics is ultimately and uh, why we have politics and a different way of thinking about it in terms of not politics is not just something that enables individuals to go about their private business and to realize their uh, private interests, but it's really the sphere in which they come together as members of a political community. And so politics is an intrinsic good uh, and democratic politics is what enables people to take full part in this realization of this intrinsic good as opposed to it being an instrumental good that enables people to make laws in a particular way or to realize laws. So it sounds to me like you're not persuaded by some socialist sort of um, 
skepticism, and I, I mean skepticism in the following way, where they see socialism. So I'm thinking of Jerry Cohen, for example, right, who sees socialism as the right kind of sort of moral ideal, the sort of the best justified vision of political society, the most just, the most moral in important ways, but is worried that we lack the technology, the institutional technology to realize that vision. So someone like Jerry Cohen became disenchanted, particularly after the fall of communism, that we might just lack the institutions to channel um, these radical forms of representation or these this sort of very different sort of, uh, mechanisms of institutional um, regulation in ways that are not going to be end up being sort of counterproductive or oppressive in some important ways. But it seems like you want to reject that kind um, of skepticism. Yeah, I mean, for me, the question is how to... So, so Jerry Cohen's effort was an attempt to think about what Marxism had in common with a particular kind of liberalism, let's say distributive liberalism or liberal egalitarianism. And the effort of that, that shaped the kind of analytical Marxist agenda was to try and find common ground at that level, to say, look, Marxist theory of distributive justice is no different from um, a kind of liberal egalitarian, radical theory, lack egalitarian even theory of distribution. But my concern, and uh, I, I guess where I try and think critically about that tradition, is in terms of political institutions. My worry is that analytical Marxism was very preoccupied and for plausible reasons to try and find common ground with this kind of um, tradition of criticism to liberalism and with this tradition of advancing a kind of liberal egalitarian agenda and was very successful in showing that, say, between uh, the Marxian concern with the asymmetry in access to the means of production and the Rawlsian concern with the difference principle, there was a lot of common ground there which made the conversation productive, but then seems to me failed to then engage the further question of what are the kinds of political institutions that are compatible with this vision and that take us there. And I think this was a limitation in Rawls, because Rawls also, um, when it came to thinking about political institutions, thought of them very much in the kind of liberal, in the classical liberal tradition. So if we think about political liberalism, the arguments around public reason and so on, then Rawls's thought is very much a kind of, um, is in continuity with the classical liberal political tradition. And the analytical Marxists never really challenged the political liberal agenda at that level. Mm. They were content to say, look, what Rawls is saying and what Marx is saying are very similar in many ways. And they were content with saying, well, we have no massive disagreement here with uh, liberal egalitarians. But I think they could have pursued the, the debate further. And this is perhaps where, you know, the, the end of the Cold War and in a way the analytical Marxist um, debate became um, much, le much less relevant in academia. I think they failed to take the further step of saying, okay, but what is Marx's theory of politics? What is the socialist theory of the state? And how does that compare to the liberal theories of the state? And what are the uh, elements of commonality and difference there? And what does the Marxian tradition give us that we don't find in the liberal tradition? And I think what it does give us is this commitment to a radical democracy, which I think puts a lot of pressure on a number of core assumptions of uh, political liberalism and that is worth exploring and developing further. Right. And this is why you think there's sort of a, a, a it's a different political alternative to yeah. the current system, political yeah. liberal system that is instantiated to different degrees, yeah. right, in various sort of liberal democracies um, around.
around the world. And it's also one, and this is something that uh, it's important. It's important to say it's one that is global from the start. So while the political liberal tradition and the debates around global justice show this, start as debates around political liberalism in the state, and then think about what does it take to realize these ideals at the global level. What kind of institutions do we need? How do we make the state big in a way, or how do we create forms of international cooperation with the state? I think what is different about Marxism is that the starting point is not a statist one. The starting point is one where interactions take place at a global level because there are global markets, because there are there is capital that is globally expanded that has comes with certain structural um, imperatives, and that one thinks about politics then in relationship to an interaction that is already global to begin with. And again, I think there is an important element here that is fundamentally different from how one thinks in a kind of liberal tradition, whether one thinks that states are the primary agents or whether one thinks that social classes, for example, are the primary agents of conflict at the global sphere, and that perhaps one would end up in a different place when one starts in this other way of thinking about conflict and thinking about the relationship between the economy and politics. Okay, great. And it sounds like One of your next book projects could be, instead of defending status cosmopolitanisms, defending something like class cosmopolitanism yeah. or, or um, some other cosmopolitan vision um, at the global level. Well, this has been um, extremely enlightening. Thank you so much for sharing your research and your work with us. And uh, to all of our listeners, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Governance Podcast with the IEP. To learn more about our upcoming podcasts and events at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CSGSKCL. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast. Mm-hmm.